and I immediately notice a debris field. And so my all my training kicks in and I'm thinking, explosion, get out. And that that's that is the beautiful thing about what we do as officers, as first responders, is our training is at such a level that it's like we know immediately what to do. There's no thinking. It's just a switch. And you could feel them when they hit the ground. That's how close we were. And, uh, you know, at that time, I didn't know that one of them had landed on a firefighter, killed him. It was, it, it's just not something that anybody should see. You know, I wasn't 100%. An agent that's not 100%, well, stuff can happen. And it's one thing when you're an investigator and that's all you do. It is a whole nother ball game when you are responsible for somebody's life. I drag myself into the, the bathroom and look in the mirror and I do not recognize my own reflection staring back at me. That is scary. Right then, I was done. Right there, I made the decision, I'm not starting a new year the way I just lived this one. I'm out. I went to the kitchen, grabbed the remaining bottles of alcohol, went in my basement, got my gun, sat on the floor. I'm like, I'm at this it. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Survival is the celebration of choosing life over death. We know we're going to die. We all die. But survival is saying, perhaps not today. In that sense, survivors don't defeat death. They come to terms with it. Lawrence Gonzalez. Welcome back, ATO family. Today we're sitting down with someone who has a lineage of survival. Going back to 1912, aboard the Titanic, some of her family members survived this. Or on August 8th, 1942, when the USS Elliot sank into the Pacific Ocean, there was a young man that survived this attack. He grew up to be one of the most successful dentists in Virginia. He is the grandfather of today's survivor. Today's guest will take us back to September of 2001. It's hard to believe this was over 20 years ago. This guest will take us on a journey from how her morning started and when she arrived at work at the World Trade Center 
at 8.43 a.m. And her biggest concern was being late for work. The account you're about to hear is from a survivor from the greatest terrorist attack in U.S. history. I mentioned her arriving at the World Trade Center at 8.43. This time is important as at 8.46 a.m., Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. Samantha Horowitz, we are ready for your story. Samantha, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I, w- I want to introduce some uh, guest co-hosts. Uh, well, Ken- well, Kent's not a guest. He's always here. Uh, Kent Wolverton's here and Vice Sergeant Roy Marino. He's also the uh, the founder of the Brotherhood of the Fallen chapter here in Dallas in 2017. Roy, say hello. Thank you for having us. Oh, yeah. You're, you and I, we've known each other forever, uh, but you, uh, we talked recently about you know, you've been listening to the podcast and I, pre- I appreciate your support and look forward to working more with you in the future on, on, on some uh, projects. Yeah. I'll be honored. Um, I've listened to every episode. I, every time I have a, I listen to an episode, I talk to Ken and Joe and I very therapeutic and I listen to every single one of them. Thank you. That's by design. That's, I mean, that's what it was for. And I'm, I appreciate it. Yeah. I get people all the time that stop me and I have no idea who actually is listening. And then Somebody will stop me in the hall and have an idea for an episode. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know you were checking this out. So, um, your your story is it's going to have a. I mean, you have one of the most critical of incidents uh, for the country and you know for the world. And we're going to get into that, but I want to build up to it. Uh, I want the listener to get to know you uh, and your path to the Secret Service, and then also. Uh, we're going to get to September 11, 2001, and then talk about where you're at now. But I want to start off, you know, just tell the listener where you grew up. Tell a little bit about your uh, childhood. Yeah, wow. Well, I grew up in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. And, uh, you know, typical household in the Burbs, about mm, 15 miles outside of D.C. And grew up playing sports. Uh, basketball, soccer, moved into softball, uh, but went to sports camp. So you name it, super involved, loved uh, the challenge of athletics and kind of the way it challenged me uh, as a kiddo. I think uh, uh, unless you play football in Texas now or baseball, you know, it's uh, whatever the big sports are, it's uh, it's has something to be desired. It's very different now. What did you play? I played soccer. Okay. Basketball, softball, um, lacrosse, gosh, just... All the above. Well, much. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if you want to start from the very beginning, yeah. kickball. Kickball, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the thing. <laughs> My daughter plays soccer. She's actually pretty good. She's a pretty good sweeper and, uh, yeah. and forward, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that sports, it brings out... it. Well, it, one, introduces you to to some failure which you can learn from mm-hmm. you know i think you, you need to have that in your life to learn from and grow from and become more resilient to you know to failure and know how to deal with it but it just also it, it uh helps cultivate a a competitive person com- competitive nature that you're always going to com- in some way compete for something even the professional world yeah and i i played started playing before there were girls teams so yeah, that's how old I am. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it it was uh, the 
best experience? I, I think, you know, when, when we look at women's sports now, and I know that's not what the podcast is about, but it's been in politics, without having women's sports, this country loses a lot. And uh, so it's just been nuts watching everything that's going on. And it, it, helped, it helped me compete at a, at a different level, starting with the guys, to first see that I could. And, and then after that, you know, working in the jobs that I chose to work in, which are dominated by, you know, men. And whether it was my first management position in a sports store to uh, the Secret Service and, you know, it, it helped me get along and it, it was actually a ability to, to bridge where it wasn't like, oh, you're a guy. Oh, you're a girl. There was none of that. It was right. just like you're part of a group. So you, you mentioned the Secret Service. When did you realize you wanted to get into that profession and, and law enforcement and, and just, you know, the federal side? Oh, really early on, every guy in my family served uh, this great country in our armed forces. And so when I took the ASVAB in high school and the recruiters started calling, you know, I thought it was my time going to gonna follow in, in dad's footsteps and everybody. And my mom said, absolutely not. Uh, so I went the uh, next best thing, which was quasi-military, you know, in law enforcement, federal law enforcement. And at first, I didn't know what path I was going to take. Um, I, I knew that service was in my blood from, if anybody is listening, the members of the, the TV show Emergency. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had chips and all that. It was, uh, But it was really having that heart for service that captured me early and so I was like oh, I'll be a police officer and then through high school and ultimately in college I was introduced to different law enforcement agencies by doing different internships and Prince George's County Maryland I went to school and graduated from University of Maryland College Park got to do an internship in the Prince George's County State's Attorney's Office where I met uh, some federal agents from FBI, from DEA, and I was handling uh, evidence for a major trial. Trial, okay. And this um, drug trial was the the biggest at that time in Prince George's County in terms of moving cocaine. And so here I am, you know, I'm I'm in college, and it's like, oh, go pick up this evidence. Oh, hey, we need you to transcribe. And sitting at hours and hours and listening to. Uh, the tapes because we had an undercover uh, inside and I was like whoa and then talking to the different agents I was like well maybe I want to go federal so I talked to my dad who served our our government both in the military and then the Department of Energy and he started talking about different agencies that uh, he was involved with at DOE uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to keep my options open. He said, well, one thing I want you to consider is going to law school. I said, what? And he's like, no, you've you been doing this internship. Look at, look at law school. Now, there were, you know, lawyers were a, a, on every street corner back then, and they are even more now. Yeah, still are. Yeah. yeah. And so I went to uh, went to and graduated law school, Howard University School of Law, and I like to say I use my powers for good, not evil, and and ended up 
kind of bouncing around because what you learn about the feds and what I learned real quick is they want some life experience, right? So I was, I applied to some, uh, looking at local PDs. I was like, should I put my application in? Yeah, I'll put my application in. And in the meantime, I got a pamphlet my dad brought home. He's like, hey, have you ever heard of the Secret Service? And I was like, well, of course, they're the people that protect the president. And he said, well, they do more than that. They do investigations. And I was like, let me look at this. And so I said, well, I'm, I'm going to do this. The FBI was my first choice. And no offense to any FBI folks out there, but I'm glad I did not end up uh, with the FBI. Uh, we worked together um, a couple of times in different investigations, but... I ultimately fell in love with the protective details in Secret Service, so the FBI doesn't provide that. And it was after law school, you know, graduated, had my application in, and it took a while to hear back. And these were the days where you're filling out applications, some online, but mostly by hand. So it was like, I think it was 25 page application. and. It was great because my dad could take it in and put it in the right hands. And also I had some uh, personal recommendations from uh, some folks that had worked at different levels, including the White House. So so that was um, that helps. preferable. Yeah. It, it does help. Mm-hmm. And got the call that, hey, you know, you're going through next steps. And I'll never forget there was a, it was called the Treasury Enforcement Exam because Secret Service used to be under the Treasury Department. A little bit of history. Yeah. And uh, Abraham Lincoln created it to combat counterfeit way back when. Imagine if he had created us to protect the president. Well, it was created at like very... I mean, really uh, a short amount of time before he was assassinated. So he had, mm-hmm. it had not even been uh, really defined yet. Right. <clears throat> so interesting, yeah. Yeah, so um, it was a test that you go down to HQ down in, in D.C. And I remember I was, I'm terrible at math still to this day. No, I was me like, too. I went to law school. I suck at math. <laughs> and <laughs> And – it it I, I had to get a tutor to make sure I could do fine in this math. Now, granted, my high school math teachers, they taught math. I don't know what they're teaching now. I can't even help my son. I feel terrible. But uh, it I got a tutor. I got through the math section. They called, went on to, to the process. The process ultimately completed itself with uh, the wonderful polygraph where everybody feels like they, they are a criminal and you're never going to get hired. Yeah, I felt that here. Yeah. I, I, I literally came home and said, I think I failed the polygraph. My mom was like, what? Yeah. And they're doing their job, right? Well, you want and, that. Yeah, yeah, you want that too. And part of it is, you know, seeing how far they can mess with your head. And uh, so... Got the call, started with special agent in training. So it's a it's a two-part, uh, really three-part, w- where you go to SAITC first, see if you can keep up with physical demands and stuff like that. Because I was an athlete my whole life, not a problem. But it, it, it really made me realize, hey, you know, I want to compete even more because it's just in my blood also to be competitive. And so 
you know, doing four pull-ups, that wasn't okay when, you know, 10 had to be the goal. Right. So they give you, they give you a baseline of where you are. And then, you know, at FLETC, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in Glencoe, Georgia, that's where you really work on the things that they had planned out. So that was great. You're going in to the next phase with a plan. And uh, went through Fletsy in the summer. Very hot. First introduction to fire ants. Yeah. <laughs> and now you hot. see them everywhere here in Texas. Yes. Well, this was before I moved to yeah. Texas. But um, So, yeah, fire ants for real. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, Fletsy was a, a wonderful experience because we were there with all the other trainees in the different federal law enforcement agencies. And how long did that training go? At that time, it was 12 weeks. Wow. Okay. So the timing, I think, is a little bit different now, now that's under Homeland Security. And then come back. Uh, that's where I learned to shoot. So, you know, there was no, even though my, my, my dad and all the guys were in the military, we didn't have guns in the house. You know, it was like, no, there, there will never be guns. I remember my dad bringing home a revolver, my mom freaking out. She was like, you have to hide that. I was like, mom, you know, it's, it's a revolver. Yeah. She's like, how do you know what that is? I'm like, I watch TV. <laughs> watch, <laughs> watch, Bugs watch Bugs Bunny. He has one. You know, oh, that was Elmer Fudd with, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> with the shotgun. <laughs> with the rifle, the shotgun, yeah. And, um, and so I, I had no firearms experience in my background at all. So these guys at Fletzy, top notch. I'll never forget we started, everybody started, didn't matter if you had prior law enforcement experience. And we were a class that was considered older. So the median age was 28 no. um, for our class. And uh, we had, we had uh, one eight, class 189 and 190. Uh, combined together so there was me and two other women in the classroom when we did our stuff uh, separately I was the only uh, female in in my class and so went through firearms and they're like here's a 357 and you know real long barrel and I learned how to shoot and I was like okay I I can do this and this is good and it is get back to Beltsville which is now you're in the Secret Service Training Academy. So outside of D.C. and Maryland, uh, and the 357 is nothing like the SIG P229. 357, just, right. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, my God, what just happened? Did I totally regress? I totally sucked. Um, and I, I can laugh about it now because I teach firearms, and mostly to women, kind of build up courage, empowerment, mm-hmm. and... Shoot, we're living in a pretty crazy time right now. Yes. So uh, I, I like people to feel comfortable around firearms and still keep in touch with my firearms instructor from Beltsville. Um, so he, so he's pretty proud of me, and uh, I thank him all the time for giving me the skills and abilities. What's to, his name? His name's Bill. Shout out, Bill. Yeah, shout out to Bill. And, uh, yeah, he's still in, so I'm not going to say his last name. Okay. But, yeah. It's uh, it, it was it was pretty cool. Whenever you got into, what were some of your goals? Whenever you got into the uh, Secret Service, you said whatever about the protective aspect of it 
drew you in what, what were some of the go- what were some of the goals when you once you got in and got through the training and become official what what did you want to get into well the first thing was we had to pick our where we wanted to be assigned so if you're assigned outside of dc you are assigned to a protective squad if you get the washington field office you're you're doing protection um what they didn't mention was in if you're going to new york that's where i ended up new york field office so the second largest field office the un so (laughs) you're doing protection um i handled you know i had one big case a year and and it, it it's a juggling act so you you learn how to seriously compartmentalize and prioritize your time because you had to keep up with quarterly training um you had to keep up with anything going in court meeting with the da's we served our own search warrants it, it wasn't like we called the nypd and said hey this is the case nope from start to finish we were it uh so bill Build your teams, build your plan, the whole thing. Um, and it, that was great. Um, but like I said, I, I fell in love with the protective aspect of the job, got to work with some very high-powered um, world leaders for for better or worse. Uh, they were not assassinated on U.S. soil, I'm just saying. But right. uh, Prime Minister of Lebanon, Hariri, the former, uh, he, uh, great detail, um, but soon after arriving back in his own country, uh, he was assassinated. And then we had uh, some world leaders from the different African nations, war crimes, and some of them were brought up on war crimes. Uh, nothing happened uh, when I was assigned with them in New York and on the U.S. soil. What year was that when you got to, we got assigned to New York? Oh, gosh, it was 2000. When okay. I went, yeah, end of 99, 2000. <clears throat> okay. And that was your first assignment right out of the, that's where you got sent right out of, out of training? Yeah. Okay. 2000, I mentioned before, we're going to, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about your book later, but I want to get into the uh, details of, of uh, the events. Of, I want to get into September 11, 2001. A lot of, a lot of young officers right now, it's, it's, it seems like it's been so long that I think a lot of people have, have forgotten the horrors of that day and, and, and everything that happened and how the country really felt we were under attack and we weren't, we weren't sure how it was going to, any of us were going to move forward. Uh, I was working out at Southeast and, uh, on, uh, you know, fourth watch was just a combination of deep, deep nights. And, and we were worried that there was going to be more attacks later that week. And, and I'm sure everybody was. Um, so can you kind of walk us through your, day and morning or your morning and day and just how everything unfolded uh, I read your book so I kind of have uh, I stalked you that way but <laughs> I just kind of want you to tell the listener bring them back to September 11 2001 and talk about how your day went yeah it was just like any other day I mean uh, I, I do remember that it was a beautiful sunny day it was quite warm for that time Uh, in New York City we started getting a little bit chilly and I was preparing to go to a we called it a police meeting because we were preparing for the UN's 50th uh, world summit Uh, super big deal and so what we did is we bring in uh, FDNY NYPD uh, supporting agencies because the Secret Service is still small it's a bigger now under DHS. But back then, I mean, we needed 
all hands on deck and we, we could never do our job in the city without NYPD and the fire department. And th- those guys are just amazing. And the plan was that we were having this meeting first thing, um, go over specifics, uh, assignments. And so I'm getting ready to head out the door kind of earlier than what your usual rush hour is. And I was living in New Jersey so I had to go over one of the bridges to end up on uh, on the island of Manhattan. And uh, I was stopped, dead stopped, on a bridge. Now, there should not have been traffic at this hour. And I'm looking at the clock. And you all know in law enforcement, if you are on time, you are late. Right. And, you know, this is a big police meeting. And I'm like, you know under my breath, every curse word. I'm like, what, how, what do I do? Come on, traffic. It's not like you can go around. There's no shoulders. You're on a bridge. And I, uh, the traffic clears, but I'm on my Blackberry. <laughs> Again, dating myself. So we had the first generation Blackberry. Super cool. And uh, I'm letting my supervisor know, hey, you know, I'm going to be hopefully right on time. But this is this situation. Okay, get here when you can. So I make it through the Holland Tunnel into uh, World Trade Center 1, and we parked in our secured parking area under 1. Get out, uh, run to the elevator, and the elevator car door opens, and I remember it is like packed with people, and I'm like, this is weird. It's maybe one or two on any given day, or me by myself, and we start the ascent up to the lobby level and all of a sudden the elevator car starts shaking the lights start flickering and I'm thinking oh now I'm getting stuck in an elevator I'm never gonna live this down because my supervisor's like what and the 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 weird thing was the day before I had noticed that they had been working on the elevator so that's just where my mind immediately went it like, broke down. okay yeah, yeah. It broke down and hopefully it won't be too bad. And because we're underground, I'll be able to, you know, text my, my supervisor. But then it was as if, and I describe in the book, like a hand grabs onto the top of our elevator car and we start ascending rapidly, not normal. And then we stop. The elevator car stops, the doors fly open and it is so abrupt that we're bouncing under the tension of the wires. And I immediately notice a debris field. And so my all my training kicks in and I'm thinking, explosion, get out. And that that's that is the beautiful thing about what we do as officers, as first responders, is our training is at such a level that it's like we know immediately what to do. There's no thinking. It's just a switch. It's instinct flipped. and a reaction. Yeah. Exactly. And there's no, there's no thinking. There's no, it just, you just do and you go into action. And that's exactly what I did because people that aren't trained, they do interesting things like try to get back on elevators, turn around in circles, walk back and forth, talking to themselves. It, it was, um, it was interesting, to say what, the least. What kind of debris field? You, in, you felt like it, the intense heat was the heat. heat. Just, yeah. So, yeah, when those doors flew open, we went to step out because it's like we were just getting stuck. You want to get out. 
uh, it was just this hottest ball of dust-filled air, and it just just kind of blew into your face, and you could feel it. And then the, the there was just papers flying everywhere. Do you know what floor you were on at the time? Yeah, we had stopped at the lobby level of one. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, because you, you were at the basement, and you mm-hmm. came up to one. Okay. So whenever people were doing... Go, you know, chaos, mass chaos, you know, from the other people. And you, what happened? Then you exited off and, and what did you do then? Oh, I grabbed the people that were trying to get back into the elevator and, and we went up an escalator uh, and I went out an exit I had never used before to kind of set the scene at that lobby level. That's where people could get their morning papers. You could get, uh, you know, bagels or pastries, coffee, and meet, you know, have meetings. And that connected you, you could walk to the different towers, because there's seven buildings in the World Trade Center complex, it were. And uh, so I ended up in an escalator in World Trade Center six, which was the old post office. And then I went out an exit door I had never used before. My gut just said, go that way. And uh, glad I did because six was one of the earliest buildings to be constructed and it provided an overhang. So you walk out the doors and you're still covered um, by the building. So think of it as like two squares. One smaller is the lobby and then a larger one sitting on top of it. And I'm with the people that that I grabbed and we are just we just are stopped dead in our tracks, taking in everything that's going on around us, which is debris falling all over the place, uh, pieces of metal, continued dust filling the air, papers flying, concrete chunks coming down, pieces of people. It it was. Yeah, it, it this was not something we were trained for but we're in chaos right so I just my brain said get to seven get to your building so I grabbed again grabbed these people we went around stayed very close to the building uh they were letting out a um child care facility they were evacuating six and got to the far corner of six where I could look across and see the lobby level of my building. We were connected by a pedestrian bridge. So you have the World Trade Center complex, one, two, three, four, five, six, in one giant square plaza. And then you take a pedestrian bridge across Vesey Street, and that led you into the lobby level of seven. And get to get to that corner and I could see my supervisor she was in the lobby of some of my squad mates and you know she was motioning to me like Sam come on run um she had and my squad mates had a completely different um perspective if you will than I did because I had six you know I was at my back and they could see not everything, but they could see the debris because the towers are so tall. Your line of sight um, were, was cut off. And uh, I, I told uh, the one woman that was with me, she went with the kids when they were coming out of the uh, 
the um, daycare. And so I had another woman with me and I told her, I said, we're going over there. And as soon as I took off running, she broke away from me, went down a flight of steps. I never, I don't know what happened to her, but I made it into my building. And once in the lobby, you know, my supervisor's like, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm just like, what is going on? And, um, you know, we're, we're all standing there and nobody has any word and then trickle down took time because in the lobby, there's no TVs. We're not hearing any of the, the scuttle about, you know, was it a helicopter? Was it a small plane? What was going on? To a train eye, it's like, okay, we have something that has blown out. So we're, it's some sort of explosion. You think because it had been attacked in 93, correct? Mm-hmm. It, it, is that what you thought, that it was a another bomb inside? Well, that's where all our heads at because this police meeting that was to happen that day didn't happen. But a few days before, we had been briefed again on the bombing of 93. Yeah. And so that's where our heads went. Uh, and we're in our building, and that's when Tower 2 gets hit. And we watched the glass. Uh, seven was all glass on the front bow in and uh pop back out it held didn't didn't break and we're just like what is going on and and we just thought we would eventually you know go investigate what this was i've seen you know everybody's seen the videos of that that can i can't imagine how loud that explosion was from your perspective and where you were and your position inside that building was it like i mean just tornado and times a thousand. I just uh, you described the sound. And- it, you know, there were so many sounds, and and from what I've been told, you know, my therapist, and and since then that uh, as you go through the healing process and you get better, that things kind of get jumbled, and so it's just like sound. There were just sounds. It was. When the towers came down, that I clearly remember, like a low grumbling, growling sound. Um, that's how I describe it in the book as well. The, the impact and explosion of Tower 2 getting hit was just, it was almost like an earthquake-ish. I mean, you could feel it um, go through your body and just this just, boom it's just lo- very low base boom after the second uh tower was hit did the y'all just have a plant we need to get the hell out of this eventually yeah okay um i was so you know how we all, we've all seen videos of people being crushed to death and your listeners are probably like what is she where is she going with this i was i had taken in so much dust I started to cough and so we had a little cafe in our lobby and I went there to get uh, a drink and as I'm standing I pay for my drink I open and I start drinking the, that's when Tower 2 gets hit and I watch the wave of people come right to me and I'm pinned up against the the counter at the register and I just am like stop stop and uh, make my way back out 
and uh, it was a decision was made. Hey, we need to uh, evacuate. We're the third tallest building in the World Trade Center complex. We're next. People didn't. It was not a public building besides Secret Service field office being in there. Then Mayor Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management was in there, and so it wasn't like, hey, come on down and come into our building and get. There's no restaurants or anything like that. Right. So when y'all made a decision to get out of the building, can you kind of walk us through that, how that went? Yeah, there was uh, an escalator on the far side of our building. And so we all filed in there. And then you had to look really hard for this door. (laughs) Because like I said, it was not open to the public. And uh, behind this exit door, which had like a stripe that was like a mirrored it was it was decorative on the outside so that's why i said you you had to know that there was a door there uh went down the hallway now when we made uh arrests and the warrants and the cases that, that we handled we would bring uh folks into the uh parking garage not the parking garage sorry the uh loading dock uh close the doors and then we would lead them through this loading dock into our interrogation rooms. So now we're taking the public down the hallways where our rooms are. Um, Cause anybody that was in there was like, we're getting out. Didn't, didn't matter if you work there or not. You, we were getting out and we, you go down this long corridor and the exit door takes you out next to what was the Verizon building, which then you walk to Westside Highway. At what point did you realize that it was a plane, not just a regular explosion? Oh, not for not for a little while okay. yet. And whenever and, you did realize that it was a plane, did it change the whole mentality behind it? Yeah, when we found out that uh, it was a plane, it was from another agent who happened to be coming down Westside Highway in his G-Ride. He had his uh, regular radio on, not his police radio, and we heard that the Pentagon got hit. So we were hearing this, and we're like, he told us, we're like, planes, you know, the brain doesn't register. It's like, planes don't fly into buildings. Planes surely don't fly into the Twin Towers because they're the largest thing and you should be able to see them, right? And uh, and so when we heard that the Pentagon got attacked, it was like you had to you had to like shake yourself into some sort of something that made sense. You just had to grab onto something. And so you look back. I look back up at the towers, and I could see Tower One every, where we were from Westside Highway. You could see Tower One clear as day. Tower Two, the smoke trail behind it, and we're like, okay, maybe that's the shape of like the wing if it went in there. So you, your mind starts wrapping. Uh, your your head starts making pictures of what you're hearing through from somebody and then through the radio and uh it was like okay and then we had to do it all over again we were we were watching the people jumping because you know when you're in a tall building you take the elevator down you don't jump so i read i read your book you you start seeing people fall we saw we've seen the videos um and you described one in your book the jumper and that was one of the images that 
that really haunted you um that was once you were outside or uh in in just before they fell obviously and you were watching this can you uh kind of describe that scene yeah uh, make no mistake they were in a position where it was burned to death or jump not fall and the you know to to in my mind i can only imagine that they they rationalize hey if i jump i can somehow get to uh the other walkway which connected the financial towers and you know i i, I don't know um we're watching these people and it's 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 like it's not real. Um, there have been hoaxes in the past in New York City where people would throw the mannequins off. And so it's it, it when we saw the the first, and I say we because I was with my squad mates, it was like, was that? No. Like, you, it couldn't have been a person. And then the next, and then the next, and then after 10, stop counting. And you could feel them when they hit the ground that's how close we were and uh you know at that time i didn't know that one of them had landed on a firefighter killed him um and it was it's just not something that anybody should see no yeah i remember those hoaxes uh and and you know watching it on just on the news and and the, the live shots was jarring enough i can't imagine actually experiencing that and seeing that along with everything else around you that was going on with all the sounds and the smells and the smell of uh, burning concrete. Yeah. Which is still fire burning concrete. Oh yeah. So whenever y'all started getting away from the, uh, the buildings, how did that look? Like I said before, we st- this one of the sounds was this low grumbling, growling sound, and we I had noticed that this was something that was getting louder. It w- it w- it was so out of place that it stood out to me. And uh, you know, Tower Two comes down first, and we run into the closest building that had open doors, which was a school. And as you're, you know, you might imagine we got some attention because here's all of us. And some of us, I had, I had my suit on because obviously I came right from my car. Um, I also had like gym bag. And, and so some of us had uh, suits on. Some, some of the agents only had jackets. Some of them had uh, gym clothes on. So some of us had our guns. Some of us didn't. We were all like a, a just a, a giant cluster of humanity swarming into this school. The the principal and uh, the folks from the front desk came out to be like, "Whoa, you know who are you?" And we told them what happened. Tower two collapsed, and it, we were like, "Well, we have to go back out because um, we're trained to save people." Uh, there was one problem that dust, and you couldn't go out 
without having your mouth and your nose covered. It is impossible to breathe. And so the guys, you know, were resourceful, just started ripping up their shirts, their their dress shirts. Um, so that now now they have dress pants on. Some of them again had their guns, and now they just have their white t-shirts and start fashioning bandanas. And we're like, well, if we we can't all go because somebody's got to be here if we're going to carry victims out. Well, somebody's got to be here to accept them. How does that scene want to look? And then we got to get ambulances, stuff that we're trained to do, the organized that go into every, you know, protectee detail movement, whether it's a pre-site plan or, or um, you know, whatever you needed for a detail. And so myself and two other agents stayed behind at the school worked with the school nurses got all the equipment out that you could imagine that you need for first aid uh got the gym mats out on the gym floor and the plan was let's bring people to the school we'll get them triage get them on an ambulance easy peasy right you're right <laughs> yeah I, I remember the uh the flood of of debris and smoke that just i mean you you couldn't see i mean it was just it flooded the streets so how far away was the school um, at that point, whenever the when the building started collapsing, like two and a half blocks, maybe three blocks, okay. yeah. Was there a point where you at you had you wanted to evacuate the school, and you were a part of that? Yeah. So in the midst of preparing to have people come, which they didn't, it was there too was, close. It was yeah. It was there's <clears throat> well, there's no when the towers came down. I mean, if you there. were there, you're you're not you're not with us anymore. Right. Um, so, you know, about uh, some time had gone by and the principal got called to, he was told evacuate. So he came to get us. And of course we're like, all right, well, what do you need? And we did not know that the school that we ran into was, uh, for developmentally delayed children. So you had wheelchairs, walkers, anything that they needed for assistance, um, but they, they knew how to do a evac and they were orderly. Um, the kids did great. And it was myself, the two agents that I was with the principal, uh, and a student who is towered over me about, and he was about six foot one, six foot two. And he had his aide with him and we're the last ones out and we're walking out the, the, their side door and the plan was to go to walk to Westside Highway and just keep going north. Okay, it's simple. Get away from the school, keep going north. And he, the student, stopped walking. I mean, we had scared him to death. We didn't appreciate the fact that, you know, yes, this is an evacuation, but other than his home, you know, the school was his safe place and he's, he doesn't know us. Uh, he knows his aide, and she's trying everything that she can to kind of coax him because it's an emergency situation, walk a little bit uh, faster. He's like, screw you guys, and just stops. And we're, we're trying everything that we know how. <laughs> Here we are, investigators. We know, you know, kind of the art of persuasion. We can't get this kid to walk. And and the the aide, she's like, oh, you you know, trying to be very, and we're like, we need to go now. Yeah, you had to go to Plan B. So, what was Plan B? What did y'all end up doing with with a student? Uh, well, um, that low grumbling, growling sound that I talk got 
extremely loud and we looked and tower one's coming down. We scooped him up and we start running as fast as we can up West side highway. And every muscle in my body felt like it was on fire, but that dust cloud that you just spoke about that everybody remembers seeing on the news. Oh, it was coming up for us really fast. And we're like, no, we have to outrun this. And we, we just, we just did. It was that determination. Uh, Again, I go, you know, my, my brain goes back to sports training, pour everything you have in your physical body right at this moment and get this kid and you and your two agents that you, that are friends. We're family, right? We need to go. And, uh, and we did. We, we, we slowed down. We looked back. The dust was starting to settle. Uh, and it was a, a scene out of The Walking Dead. I mean, the dust comes down and people are walking out. And they got, some of them got hit. So there's blood coming from different, mostly from the head. And I remember some like on legs and some had like ripped clothes. And, uh, so we're we're just like, what do we do? And we go to turn around to keep walking north, and an ambulance appears, just appears. And uh, two firefighter paramedics jump out, and in New York, you know, call them the bus. And they jump out, and they come running. They see we have we have somebody, and they immediately jump into action. One of them takes the leg that, that I have. Uh, the other one, um, uh, the agent who had the student, um, scooped up underneath his arms. Uh, I'm not going to say his name just to protect his identity. And, uh, he jumps in and helps him, um, with the student. And then they load him onto the stretcher and the, he and the aide get whisked off to the hospital, and we're standing there like, what now? And then our pagers go off. Oh, yeah, I just dated myself again. <laughs> the pager. You I, know I'm that familiar, thing that beeps at you? I'm familiar with those. <laughs> there you go. So the pager with scrolling text, uh, all NYFO agents meet at Pier 63. So that meant that somebody was still in our building inside – sending these texts from what you know you call our command ops and we called it the duty desk it was like okay somebody's still there well we're just gonna follow what the text says because we've already walked further than you would in new york city and any given day that's what cabs are for and we get to pier 63 and our, you know, everything got so jumbled, but our, some of our supervisors were there. Some of the people I was like, wait, you were down there and now you're up here. And, uh, they had arranged for the U S park police to ferry us on their small boats, ferry us across the Hudson to New Jersey, New Jersey, uh, field office agents were waiting with their, uh, G rides to take us home. Uh, coordination planning we're like we're this is what we're good at right and for those of us who were either in the dust cloud got caught up or like like us running from it and 
dealing with what we had just been through, uh, it was good to see the field office folks that were there. So how does a day like that actually end? I mean, you say they basically call you over and say they're going to show you across the the water the Hudson, there. And, yeah. And, and then you go home and decide what's for dinner. Like that that seems really, really odd. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, for me, it was, oh crap, I have no keys to get into my apartment because, you know, I left a lot of the stuff in my G-Ride and, um, uh, and it was yeah you you you're going home and I was going back to an empty apartment it was around 5 30 uh when I got there uh because I didn't have my keys I went to uh one of my squad mates who lived um very close to me and he and his wife let me get a hold of my landlord uh to call to say hey you know I'm I'm locked out. Can you come meet me? And his first thing was, oh my God, Sam, you know, when he, because he knew what I did. And, uh, and so he, he met me there and, and got me in the apartment, gave me the keys. And I don't even have keys to my POV because they were on the same keychain. So I'm like, you know, it, it, it was all planning. It's like, what do I need to do next? So some like running on pure adrenaline. Uh, and, I'm pacing, I'm walking around my apartment, still in this the same clothes, all covered in dust, and my phone rings. And at this time, uh, you know, the phone lines were down. I had access out. Uh, we had, besides the BlackBerry, we had uh, government, our phones, not smartphones. And for whatever reason, my phone worked. So I was able to, uh, I connected with my family first, and then I was able to give my phone to people that were up from D.C. taking part in, you know, this, this U.N. thing. And they were able to let their spouses know that they were okay. And so I get, so the phone rings, and it's my best friend that I grew up with in, in high school we met in junior high and again this everybody was like oh my god sam <laughs> so scott he he's like oh my god sam it, i i i'm i can't believe I, i'm talking to you thank god thank god your building just came down i'm like no 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 i worked in seven you know we, we we're okay everybody's out he's like yeah seven world trade center right and i said yes your building just came down, go to the TV. I'm like, what? I go to the TV, turn it on, and sure enough, I'm watching Seven come down, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, the duty desk, the, the text. You know, I was like, oh, geez. And, uh, and it kind of put me into this, well, now what? So, and, go ahead. Yeah, now now what? That's, that's the next question is, <laughs> is, what do you do the next day? Because I've worked with the Secret Service and, and several federal agencies before, and Secret Service is probably top-notch as far as logistics, like you said. We've got plans. We've got procedures for everything we're supposed to be doing. It's very well organized. But now you're talking about our office is wrecked. You know, mm -hmm. if, if there's anything left, it's a crime scene at this point. You guys don't have access to hardly anything that you typically would. Yep. So what is the next day like? Uh. 
well, it was finding everybody that didn't report in. So it was uh, stay, stay, you know, those of us that had our pagers, like I said, depending on where we were, we either had equipment, we didn't. Um, so I got called from my supervisor and she uh, was asking me if I remember seeing one of my squad mates. And I, I said, yes, I remember seeing her. She was standing right next to me as we were watching the people jump. And then I I have no idea where she went. And uh, there were other people that were on the other side uh, of Manhattan, on the other side of the island, or doing other assignments somewhere else. So they weren't there. So it was trying to figure out where everybody was. And hey, stay close to your phone. Um, you know, don't go, don't, don't, if you're, if you need to go out or whatever, you know, just let us know kind of thing. Um, then the next call came in, hey, we're, we're going to have a, a debrief. And as okay. And here's what you need to know. It's going to be at the airport and just show up. I, I I can't remember what time it was that we needed to be there in the morning. Um, and hey, you need to take care of some uh, some business before you get there. Make sure to, that you go and get a chest X-ray. Here's uh, some providers and stuff like that. I'm like, what the? F-? Uh, sorry. No, <laughs> but, no. You're, are we allowed to? Uh, you, you can I say mean, whatever okay. you want. Yeah. And uh, you know, my brain. I'm literally. I'm like, what the fuck? It, it, there, there was. It was um, it was business as usual. We had to do business as usual because um, that was what was keeping us in a forward momentum. Just a sense of normalcy. Right. We were not ready to unpackage yet. Uh, it took me hours just to get in the shower that night. And I had to wait for my boyfriend, who's now my husband, uh, and to come up, to drive up from Maryland, because I couldn't piece anything together of why I'd go in my bathroom. I closed my bathroom door, and I would just start sweating. My heart felt like it was going to jump out of my chest. And if I was out of the bathroom in open space, all of those kind of things would dissipate. I didn't I never put two, two and two together. Nobody talked about this in training. It was like, you know, just go kick ass. You know, I'm, I'm the only female in, in, in my, my uh, partner in control tactics was six foot one. And it was like, hey, let's go watch Sam get thrown around a mat room, right? <laughs> so, hey, you deal with the bruises, you deal with the, the bumps, you deal with getting knocked around um, and, and you keep, soldiering on so those are all typical things that you would deal with but that's the day-to-day right the bumps and bruises did the secret service have anything for you guys as far as your mental state and and your your mental health and no i mean they scrambled they were scrambling to figure out what what to do and we had so when we went through uh the process to get the invitation to become an agent you went through the health screening so at our headquarters in dc you know they had those those people and i guess they thought that 
hey, let's get those people up, all of them. Let's fly them up to New York and uh, or drive them up to New York. No flying. Drive them up to New York and uh, and they'll do they'll handle the debrief. How did you feel about counseling at that point in your life? Oh, I went through counseling, family counseling. I mean, come on, doesn't everybody? These yeah, but but it's, I, I know. But at <laughs> but that no, point, back then yeah. it was a little different. Yeah, like, I mean, you didn't go around to, hey, I went to see yeah. my counselor today, and um, you know, families go through stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So my my parents are no uh, immune, uh, not immune to that, and so we did family counseling for a little while. My sister and I both, after every session, decided, no, you two need to be in this, not us, and um, you know. There was a divorce uh, that came, but we, we were grown adults, my sister and I, when that when that happened. When you had that experience of not knowing, your basically your body's check engine light was coming on, you're just trying to take a shower after that day. Mm-hmm. You had not experienced anything like that. Never. I'm not claustrophobic. Uh, you know, I had my fair share of MRIs <laughs> being a, an athlete. So there was nothing uh, like that. And, and, you know, I didn't get on elevators for, for a while. Um, you, you, what, I, what I did was really compartmentalize in, in my head of, like, what's, what's safe, what's not. And it, it sounds, well, it's, it sounds ridiculous because you can't foretell what's going to happen on any given day. Um, I don't have that crystal ball. Um, but you, you do approach things uh, a little differently. Moving forward, you start noticing a change in yourself and people around you start noticing a change. Can you describe that? Oh man, that wasn't until like way later. I I, I had, I had, when I had to get that chest Mm x-ray and that was the first time that I kind of let myself feel anything and I remember just breaking down and just hugging Steve and and, you know I'm sure he was like what the heck uh and we we just stood there um and he was he was driving me and and I I kind of would just like zone out um I didn't let him see a lot because this was not the Sam Certainly, they, he was he was dating. Like I said, we weren't married yet, um, and it was that, you know, it's it's in law enforcement uh, as first responders, we take on the identity of what we do. Now we know all these, you know, you you learn as uh, with age that that that's part of the stigma. We have to break that, and uh, you know, so that's the work that I'm doing now. But at the time, it was. Sam, you need to like buck up here and just stay in control, do what you know how to do. And, you know, in the, in the debrief that we had, which were split up by squad and we're sitting in a, sitting in a big circle in a conference room. And there were a lot of us, you know, big, big field office and, they asked us one question. They were, where were you when the towers came down? I was like, that's a weird question. How about, like, where were you when shit happened? Because I was on West Side Highway when the towers came down. That sounds pretty benign, right? Um, and listening to uh, the stories of my and squad mates and, and the guys, some of them 
you know, breaking down saying I thought I was going to die. Uh, it was tough. So everybody was pretty open during that? As open as yeah. we were invited uh, to be. Who was running that? The, who, who kind of ran the... Uh the debrief that was that was the the folks that they brought up from the health from dc okay yeah and so it ended with hey if you ever need anything you know we're here here's our cards and and, and that kind of thing and and it, it just from from an outside perspective even even steve was like why are they having this at an airport because every time a plane would fly over you would see us instinctively duck like go go to get under something and you know it's like having somebody been in a shooting let's have a a meeting at the gun range yeah 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 exactly it makes you scratch your head (laughs) yeah so you said it started happening you started noticing more of a difference and you started basically your behavior and your your coping skills started just going a different direction later on can you describe that to the listener yeah, the, the 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 weeks and the months following. I mean, it was it was like get up and um, oh yeah, go to your new not field office on the Upper West Side above a BMW car dealership, and there were news people always around, and um, our office had no doors. <laughs> was, nice. I, yes, I said that the Secret Service uh, office handling electronic crimes and credit cards was there too. Uh, we had no doors. Yeah, that was special. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> you have to laugh. Yeah, no, yeah. We thought we had it bad with waterless toilets here. Yeah, yeah. We we don't have we don't have uh, in the urinals. I have no water. So, yeah. Um, what were some of the coping mechanisms you were using back then when you started the weeks and months that went by? I know because I read your book. But. Yeah, well, I tried to stay, you know, with the fitness thing, but yeah, drinking. Mm-hmm. It's really common with yeah. the first responders. Yeah, and, um, anything to go numb, um, to not not deal with the emotions, to not not feel. Um, definitely not watching TV. Um, it was uh, it was just get through the day, keep keep your nose down. Again, do what you do what you know how to do. Do what you are trained to do. And everything would be okay. That's what I kept telling myself um, until that started not working. And I, I had made phone calls back to the to uh, headquarters, um, and it was like, "Yeah, okay, we're you know we hear you. We're we're trying to get back up." And I, I just am like, "Whatever." Yeah, they weren't you know, hearing you. Yeah, it, it was it was always well we have to deal with stuff at the Pentagon. And that was a thing that really made me sit back in my chair and be like, what stuff at the Pentagon? We don't, that's, that. Just, Secret Service doesn't have anything to do with the Pentagon. We don't have an office there. People die, there was horrible. Um, yes, we're, um, some people, maybe there was cro- cross protectees um, that, you know, wanted to go down there, whatever it was. I, I, but to use the Pentagon as an excuse when it's like, excuse me, you have no New York field office. 
The second largest field office in the Secret Service does not exist anymore. And you're talking about the Pentagon. So how did you get help? Did Was that something that came about through the Secret Service, or is that something you just made the decision that, that you didn't want to handle it the way you were handling it anymore? I didn't get help. I just buried it. I didn't get help for a long time. And, and, and I couldn't. It, it came down to reading the same paragraph of a report that I had to hand in. And I'm like, why can I not comprehend? I, I went to law school. I wrote briefs. I, I, the, the U.S. attorney used to use me to draft everything. Do you remember oops, floppy disks? Mm, oh, yeah. So they had everything on a floppy. And they said, hey, Sam, here is how, just fill in the blanks. Here's the paperwork. And I'm thinking, I, I'm like, I would ask my other squad mates, did you have, did anybody give you a floppy? Did you have to do this? And they're like, no. And I was like, ah, oh, it's the law school thing. So I used to draft the, the documentation and, and I was like, whatever. And I couldn't, I couldn't now go through and do my reports that should have been second nature. And it was frustrating. I was pissed, not sleeping. Oof. That's a, that was a biggie. And an agent that, you know, I wasn't 100%. An agent that's not 100%, well, stuff can happen. And it's one thing when you're an investigator and that's all you do. It is a whole nother ball game when you are responsible for somebody's life. And I, if any, I, I just had to make a decision that I'm not 100% and somebody might get hurt. And I, I don't want that on my shoulders. I can't have that on my shoulders. Um, it, it was the survivor's guilt was enough because tra being trained to save people and it was like, Oh, we should have, we should have pulled people out. We should have saved more people. And, you know, being reminded, well, the high school student, yeah, the, I, I know, I know, but it's always, I know, but, and it just got to a point where, I needed to not be there. Um, and I made a really difficult decision. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a decision that I came to lightly. Um, it, I wasn't functioning as Sam anymore. That drive that I had as an athlete, I'm like, what am I competing with? Me. Because my head was so screwed up. Well, nobody ever gave me the playbook for that right and we're a lot better now <laughs> yeah it's a lot better but. but i had we had nothing and i say we because nobody wanted to talk about the two-ton elephant in the room every day we came in we were tasked with tracing the the money as it was connected to 9-11 and we walked back by the the mug shots that's what we call them the mug shots of the terrorists that's what i saw every single day were you hiding this well with your Steve and your other loved ones? Oh, easy, because I lived in New Jersey and they did not. And you're just... They, I, I mean, my mom, my mom, my grandparents, Steve knew that, that, that there were issues with thunderstorms. Oh, man. When there were major storms, that's, again, that 
it brought everything back, like watching the towers fall again, and I would be jumping under things. And that was something that I loved as a kid. Meteorology fascinates me. And, and my parents used to say, get, get away from the window. You're going to get struck by lightning. What did I know as a kid? You know, I, I, good, good kid. I, I listened, but then I'd be like, no, you can't. I read. Yeah. And so my nose would be pressed against the window. And, you know, if it's really loud and intense and you have that huge bolt of lightning and the window would shake, I mean, that was awesome. Oh, no. It was not awesome for a very long time. Well, you, sh- you saw the ultimate window shake. Yeah. From... from- and, that, with, and, yeah. and feeling, yes, you, know, you feel when it's an intense storm, the thunder and everything. Yep. So that was not good. What was your breaking point? <sighs> wow. Um, I, I had separated from the secret service. I was now living in, at home in Maryland with Steve. Uh, we got married in January of 02. And I left my position as an agent in uh, the spring of uh, 02. So uh, even though we were living apart for all that time, I had a home to come home to. And I was like, oh, great. I'm, I'm getting out of the city. Uh, I don't have to drive past Ground Zero, the freezer trucks, the whole, the whole scene every day anymore. And I thought, this is, this is good. I'm going to be with the, the guy that I married. I'm going to see my family, my support system, and I'm going to be good. Sam's going to be good. And Sam was anything but good. Uh, you know, because your head's attached to your body <laughs> where everything yeah, you know, is going on. Yeah, there's that minor detail. So uh, things just got really uh, progressively worse. I was drinking every night. Again, anything to numb out. Um, and I was coming up on, uh, on New Year's and I was sleeping 10, 12 hours. Um, I would drag myself out of bed and I, and I, I did this cause I wasn't sleeping. So it would be like, I go to sleep, a nightmare would wake me up. I fall asleep again. Something else would wake me up. 10 hours though, you know, so you, so you can imagine if you're breaking this up throughout, I don't know, waking up sometimes in the middle of the day and I drag myself into the, the bathroom and look in the mirror and I do not recognize my own reflection staring back at me. That is scary. And right then I was done. I didn't know who I was. I lost every semblance of who, who I was, the, the strength. I didn't have strength anymore. I couldn't make sense of anything that was going on. And nobody could help me, well, because I didn't let anybody in. And right there I made the decision, I'm not starting a new year the way I just lived this one. I'm out. And so we wished, uh, we had some people over for New Year's Eve, wished them Happy New Year. They left. Of course, the alcohol was free-flowing as usual. Uh, went up to get some rest. Sleep still eluding me. Got out of bed. Steve stayed in bed with our dog. And, um, and I went to the kitchen, grabbed the remaining bottles of alcohol, went in my basement, got my gun, sat on the floor. I'm like, I'm at this is it. I'm, I'm taking myself out. I don't. I do not need myself like this. And I was absolutely convinced 
that nobody needed me in the way that I was. I was useless. And just sat on the floor, took a deep breath, closed my eyes, started squeezing the trigger, and a voice just boom, like, Sam. And I opened my eyes and I looked around. And as I'm looking, the voice said, it's not your time. Very calm. And I know I'm in the basement by myself. And I know that it is the voice of my higher power who is talking to me. But I am in such a deep, dark place that I do not want to believe that I, I am literally being spoken to. And so I just drink some more right to the point where I was ready to pass out. Took another deep breath, put my gun to my head, started squeezing that trigger. And my dog jumps into my lap. And he's a 10-pound miniature schnauzer named Solomon. He's not with us anymore. And I'm looking down into his eyes that are just like searing into mine. And it's as if he's saying, I need you. I need you. I passed out, came to a few hours later. Solomon is curled up right next to me. And I know I left that dog curled up in his bed on our bed, because that's where he was every night, behind a closed door. And it wasn't until I moved to Texas and a wonderful woman, I was doing a book signing in a church, and anybody that knows me well is like, I can't do two things at one time. I've got to focus. So I'm signing books. And she comes and she's talking to me in my ear. And she's saying, well, Sam, you know what, so what about Solomon? And I'm like, yeah, my dog. She says, well, you know what Solomon was? And I, I was like, my dog. You know, I'm giving her this puzzled look. And she says, no. And I, 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 I say, excuse me for one second to the person who I'm trying to sign the book for. And I'm looking at her. And she says, what is dog spelled backwards? At this point, I mean, I grew up pretty, pretty religious. I mean, we were observant. But after 9-11, I was just like, F you, God. You let 3,000 people fucking die. I'm going through this and I'm, I'm asking for answers and you're giving me nothing. What am I supposed to believe? He always keeps a seat at that table. It's up to us to put our butts in it and pay attention. And when you're drinking to the point that I was drinking and pushing everybody away, you can't even understand or see that the seat is there right? I had a difficult decision to make at that time. I mean, I was not going to pull the trigger again in front of my dog. I, I have, I had three dogs before. We're, not, we're now down to two. I will never be without dogs in my life. Um, but it was tough. I mean, I cleaned everything up and it was, it made it as if nothing happened. I was like, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm just going to try and figure out what it's not your time means. And I'm looking at myself. I go in the bathroom, splash water on my face, and I'm looking. And I was like, what, what, what is this? And it was 
for the next year, a dangerous game of stay present or check out. And um, I just fought. I fought with everything that I had. I still couldn't figure it out. But whatever, whatever that experience was, it at least allowed me to connect with that call it competitive drive or whatever, that curiosity that I had when I was a kid that made me go into investigations in the first place, right? Just, just hang on, Sam, just hang on. That's, that's what I kept telling myself. And, um, I had forgotten a a very important lesson that I had learned a long time ago, which was when you are, things are at their worst, when you are literally down on your knees, that's when victory is around the corner. And nobody can give you the timeline. And that's the game. That's what why you got to hang on to that hope. And I'm sitting at my breakfast table and my mom comes over unannounced. She, she lived five minutes from us. And she comes in, she puts a piece of paper in my hand. She says, we need you back. Now, I had no idea. I was not reaching out right? It was Sam, the secret service agent, Sam strong, Sam is this full identity of the job, even though I was separated from the job, people expected me to be that. And she was watching this whole thing. And Steve was talking to her, you know, and and I, I, I find this out after therapy where, you know, he's not understanding, he's talking to my mom. And on that piece of paper was the name and a number of a very skilled therapist. And uh, she, I called the number and she saved my life through EMDR, the, the therapy protocol. Yeah, that we, we have talked a lot about uh, EMDR on this and, and it kind of was discovered in, I believe, 87. And then it started being used in first responders uh, in the, ni- the mid-90s after the Oklahoma City bombing. And it was st- initially it was looked at as as kind of the voodoo, right? And and it wasn't really buy in. Now it's kind of the go to for dealing with first responders in military uh, that are suffering from trauma. Yep, and it, it's interesting because I grew up, or, or when Steve and I moved to to Texas, our house was just up the road from what became Walter Reed. Um, so I, I, because my dad was in the military, you know, Bethesda Naval, that's where the pe- president went. We, we shopped there at the exchange. And so that's where they put the brain health center. And yeah, so it was, uh, it was experimental for the longest time and now it's not. All right, Sam, I want to go back to you. You mentioned your mother handed you a piece of paper with a therapist's name on it and you went and had EMDR therapy. I want you to kind of just tell us about what you knew of it and how your first visit went with that and how that kind of kicked off and what how, were you receptive to it or, or what? Yeah, I had never heard of EMDR. I mean, it, it was, you know, we're talking about a time before there were smartphones. So it's not like, hey, let me whip out my phone and check this out. Um, my mom had had a conversation with her and in her own way explained it to me and going through family therapy, I was like, okay, it's just, we're going to surf another couch. Right. So I made the appointment and I went into it just open because I was so desperate. I, I needed something. And I 
remember getting to the office and people talk about hypervigilance. They talk about startle reflex, lots of buzzwords when it comes to post-traumatic stress. And my startle reflex was high. I talked about the thunderstorms diving under furniture. So uh, the dumpster trucks <laughs> looking for furniture again to dive under. And, um, and so I'm sitting in the office and uh, she calls me in, typical, I'll call it therapist couch, she's in a chair, explaining how things are, are going to work with EMDR. And she's talking about a light bar and some vibrating paddles and headphones. And I'm like, what? It's like, just just listen, Sam, just listen. And then this, uh, somebody slammed the door to the front of her, her office and I hit the ceiling. I mean, like a cat, like my claws were in and I'm on the ceiling and I, uh, adre huge adrenaline rush. So she's seeing this firsthand and I cannot, uh, get myself to slow down. Everything just like a flood just, just comes out. And, um, it took, I don't even know how long to, for me to kind of get myself back under control, if you will, not a comfortable feeling, uh, since I didn't really know this person. Um, but the way that she handled it, uh, the way that she helped me ground again and put me back in, uh, a somewhat safer place where I could communicate again. Uh, and I mean that because I could not talk during, uh, this whole episode, and so she knew, I think, uh, if I'm putting words in her mouth, that she had her work cut out for her. Yeah. But I was at that point where it was like, just please help me. Help me. And that's a very unique experience to actually, for the therapist to see what you're trying to tell them. I mean, you didn't have to say another word at that point. I'm sure they, they were like, okay, I see where you're at now. Because normally it's like going to the garage. As soon as you pull into the garage and tell them what's wrong with your car, you're like, oh, it's making this weird noise. And they always want you to make the noise. And I think it's right. all just a joke. But you actually got to, to diagnose your issues right there in front of them. Like, this is what I'm dealing with. And so instead of trying to explain it verbally, it was right there in front of them to see. Yeah. So thanks to that person, whoever slammed the door. Yeah, it was fake. It was. Yeah. Now, did this therapist have a background that you knew of in first responders or uh, in dealing with extreme PTSD? Yeah. So she had been a trauma therapist for a while. She, uh, her background was working with veterans, uh, Vietnam. So, um, I was like, Oh, this is intriguing. Uh, you know, every guy in my family served. So, uh, she gets veterans. She understands. She started talking about post-traumatic stress. Again, I didn't know that I had it, but everything that she was explaining, I was, um, I'm checking the boxes. When I'm explaining to her what's going on, she's checking the boxes. And it was when I knew her background, she's also was a registered nurse. So she had some medical training, um, that it was, uh, her heart was in the right place. And I don't think it would have mattered if I was not a first responder. The, like I said, the way that she handled my startle response, I was like, and 
helped. I was like, okay, this person, this person, at least at that moment, you've got my attention because I can focus on what you're saying. And like with anything, uh, meeting somebody, somebody for the first time can be difficult, just mm-hmm. and especially in this setting. And to have a f- great first meeting and you got you have your own intuition being in you know law enforcement and dealing with all the trauma that you faced you know was there some skepticism when when going to her when i knew you were you were at a really low point and you needed help you knew you needed help but was there a little bit of skepticism when you you went to go uh, see her i mean in the back of my mind a, a little bit um But I said, you know, unlike a lot of first responders that walk in, um, I I walk, or I should say, like a lot of first responders that walk in, I walked in the office like completely, you're not going to, Sam is Sam, you know, I'm not going to crack. Let's let's see how this goes. You're going to test her. To see if there's going to be a second. And, you know, call it divine intervention, whatever needed to happen, you know, somebody knew that uh you're in the right place and you need help and I'm going to make sure that this person sees that you actually need help and that's when the the door slammed I will say with my partners that I work with um it's it, we hear a lot of stories where the person that you're sitting across from they need to understand the job. They need to understand trauma, traumatic incidents, the compounded trauma. You know, when you sit on it, uh, when you're sitting across from from somebody and said, you know, you, I've worked 400 murder scenes, you can't have them go, whoa. You know, that's what you don't want to hear, um, and you don't want to see their eyes get really big because that's a clear sign. Well, I guess I'm in the wrong place next, and. What happens if that, you know, statistics show, okay, maybe once is okay, but if you're, if it's continuing and you're on your third therapist, fourth, fifth, some of them just pull that lever and it's, it's too much. And so it is really important to find a qualified practitioner, whether they're a family member that grew up in a first responder family and have a lot of that. Talk about vicarious trauma. They get trauma because they've seen it. They've absorbed it. They've dealt with their own stuff. Or whether it's a first responder that's retired and now working as a a practitioner because they they see the need. They want to help their brothers and sisters. Um, So so there there is a fine line. It's not just jump on the, to the first couch. And then, you know, if, if, if you know somebody that has gotten help, word of mouth, right? That helps too. Yeah. So you believe being culturally competent is absolutely important with a first responder. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I have, I've uh, received EMDR therapy and I believe some other folks, you know, here too, as well, uh, in has benefited from it. Um, I didn't know anything about it. And uh, one of our uh, ATL counselors, she's former DPD, did 23 years of Dallas PD, 17 in narcotics, and she's a badass, and Dottie Claggett, and, and she's, she's now a trainer for, uh, for EMDR, you know, and she's, she's, that's her go-to, and she's good at it. 
It's amazing stuff. Yep. It's uh, to some people, it sounds a little out there, um, it, especially you know when they start. It, it depends because EMDR has evolved. Yeah. So so much since I'll say way back when, and so some people use a light bar. Some people don't use paddles. Some people use ta- your own tapping. Some people you follow their finger. It's it's. It, it, this must sound weird to people listening. Follows my finger. What? Well, can but, you kind of explain yeah. that, like what the experience was like, or or if can if you if you, you, know, you all want to jump in, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, because it, because it can be different mm-hmm. uh, based upon your practitioner. So so mine used the light bar. So you follow. I, I track the light bar with my eyes instead of her holding up her fingers and moving our fingers back and forth and tracking that. Uh, there was also an auditory component, which interestingly enough for me, set my, it triggered me. So we were like, okay, we're not using the headphones, so we'll just put those aside. And then uh, the, the paddles that um, had a vibration and it went in a particular sequence. Um, and, and so as soon as I, I, we had the recipe for Sam where Sam could focus, Sam could get into it. I could go to my safe place when I need it. And it just brought out all of this stuff that I, I mean, I had not thought about since I was a kid. And that's the amazing thing is, is it opens doors that you thought you closed and locked it's like, why is this coming up? And you work through, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, mine was 9-11. And we just repeated, like, scenes out of a movie because mine were very segmented, the way that the brain works and all the smells and everything that I took. It just got stored. And when you lock, try to lock it and the door doesn't want to lock uh, and EMDR opens it, well, you've got to deal with, what is in front of you right then before you can move uh, to something else. So we're traditional talk therapy. Um, you know, uh, it's like a, you, they, they'll have a pad, a scratch pad. And, oh, so last time we talked about la, la, la. And then it might bring something up. But then you can go to a different time altogether. That's not how EMDR works. You've got to stay in exactly where your brain just took you and unpackage that. What were some of the things your mind was going to when you were doing this? I know you, you've, there's so much from that wow. day in, in, in your life, but what, yeah. what really stands out? Oh, uh, so the jumpers by far that was, that stayed with me the longest. That was something that took a long time to to get me to you also rate your stress level to really come down and 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 be okay with and and not try to put judgment around and not try to put judgment on myself about um the situation and 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 then the that low grumbling growling sound that I talked about in the very beginning with the towers coming down I mean there's still times my triggers are very few and far between and every once in a while and I never know and I'll just be it, it's not vivid it's almost like watching um a movie screen that's transparent so I can see completely through it and 
the towers are coming down and I hear the sound, but I don't have that visceral body response, that stress response where, you know, sweating, my heart's racing. I don't have that anymore. It's just like, this is interesting. I take note. Uh, I'm aware of it. I take a step back. I detach from it. And because of that awareness piece, I just kind of scan my environment and be like, well, what, what was that? You know? I love how can't uh, you break down EMDR and kind of give your explanation. I love how you do it. Can you go ahead and... So it, it was really weird for me. I, I kind of went into the whole thing a little apprehensive. I didn't know that it was exactly what I needed or how I wanted to do it. And Dottie Claggett was just like, I think we should try this. And I was like, well, you're the boss. You know, I, <laughs> I don't do this for a living. That's your, your job. So she basically had just a little wand that she waved in front of my face and said, just follow it with just your eyes. You know, like, you know, we, we all learned the horizontal nystagmus. I mm-hmm. can't even remember all the words anymore. Um, but basically just follow it with your eyes and don't move your head. And so I did that a few times. And as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm, she's like, focus on whatever it, it is that bothers you. And so I'm trying to replay the, the events in my mind and I'm trying to follow that. And I'm, I'm kind of a weird person. I, I have to count like, it doesn't matter if I'm running or if I'm working out. I'm constantly counting reps or steps or whatever. So as she's going back and forth, I'm like, one, two, three, four, you know, and, and I, I've, I had a hard time focusing on what I was trying to focus on already. But as it keeps going, it's like it almost just got fuzzy. The entire image of, of what was going on was getting fuzzy, and it was hard for me to pay attention to it. And then we took a break, and she was like, let's try that again but this time I want you to even focus even more. And she said, I want you to tap. And so I'm tapping mm-hmm. on my own legs. And as I'm tapping again, I'm counting because I'm weird and I'm trying to focus on that image and it's getting more blurry and more blurry. And it was so vivid before. And it was something that I've dealt with for 17 years at that point of every day. I relive this moment. Worst day of my life. Um, tied in with one of the best days of my life. It was a really awkward situation that we'll get into in a later episode probably. But we have to now. <laughs> yeah, you open that can. <laughs> but watching it and and trying to focus on it and then it just gets blurry. And then the next day I wake up and I realize towards the end of the day like I haven't thought about it. And to this day now, I don't think about it until I'm ready to discuss it with people. So when we talk about traumatic events, that's that's my go-to, right? Like, I'm, here's my story. But it's not something that haunts me anymore. It's not in the, the forefront of my mind. It's actually filed in the back of my mind now where it was supposed to be the entire time. But having gone through it and living with the fear of what was going to happen, you know, all the other things that you go through when you're involved in anything on duty, is, is it's tough to process what you actually went through. And I think the EMDR actually helped me process that. So watching it go from being ultra vivid every day to still fuzzy, if I even try to recall it now, it, it's really weird. I, I like to think that it's a little bit of voodoo, but uh, I'm here for it. So, Yeah, since you talked about <clears throat> the jumpers and, and, and the, the – the, uh, and I read your book, the – rumbling and that growling sound that the twisting metal and and uh the burned concrete and everything yeah that smell yeah Yeah. i've tried to imagine how that sounds and it's just it you know it's i can't imagine how loud 
that must have been and already one of the busy the busiest cities in the country yeah that's one of the that's one of the interesting things about the the brain work so you you know you guys know that the fight or flight and then came freeze many years later that when all of this stuff was coming at me it must have been so loud but my brain was protecting me and it was like somebody took the volume button and just went nope and so i just moved and did the motions with no sound even though i know there was it was utter chaos it's kind of interesting and that and then to have the post you know when you're supposed to be in your safe place you know mine was my apartment and then eventually my home and then relive all of this in that vivid high def with the sounds it's yeah that's kind of like woohoo the mind-blowing the brain is ultra powerful it's really scary when you realize what your own brain can actually do yeah and it's actually a big relief knowing that as well what the brain can do and what you can basically train your own brain to. Yep. You know, it, it's adaptive. It, 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 it's plastic. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Very. Uh, what kind of support were you getting from home whenever you were, you were going through this and, and did you, after the first session and, and the first, you know, experience, how did that look when you went home as far as you're laughing a bottle of okay (laughs) i mean i mean let's face it you just i i just went through this massive adrenaline dump startle reflex i don't know whether to go for a run to go to sleep to you know so i was like let's just drink um it is uh everything got stirred up right so so i did my best for the longest period of time that i could to kind of keep everything at a manageable level because I, I, I needed that control. You know, in law enforcement, we need control. Okay. I, I, I tell people all the time the Secret Service takes control to the umpteenth degree because we're trying to even control Mother Nature if we can, right? And and so any ounce of that that I, can, I could get is what I grasp onto. And now you know, the, the, the boiling pot, the lid just got taken off and, oh, it was, it was nuts. And God bless my husband. Um, we've been married for 21 years and I, I often have to stop myself and put myself in his shoes of what it must've been like to live with me because you don't ask, well, how's your therapy appointment, dear? You know, I mean, without having, you know, knives thrown at your face. (laughs) It's, you know. Poor husband. Yeah. (laughs) So he didn't know, he didn't know what to say. I mean, he he comforted me in his own way. Like sometimes it was just sitting on the couch with me and just putting his arm around me or just giving me a hug. Um, but people that are listening to this that, that have been through trauma, sometimes your body is in a state uh, of alertness and a- awareness and where it's like, hey, don't effing touch me. You know, so he, he, he wouldn't understand when it, when I would push him away because all he wanted to do is give me support. And I think that's a big component 
that's gotten better over the years. There was no, let's bring the spouse or the family in to help on them understand why Sam's a God blessed mess and what this is going to look like. And, you know, cause it's hard, it's hard to explain what's going on when you're in it. Because if you talk about it, you just got out of something that was crazy. And there were times, a couple of times, um, she did not push meds. Meds have their place. If you need it, great. Uh, if you don't, great. Where I needed something because things got went so far sideways. There was so much to work on that I couldn't come down, you know. And uh, and luckily, I only had to take that stuff you know, three times. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Um, but yeah, that's like, hi, honey. Bye, honey. Clunk in, into the bed and don't bother me for a bunch of hours. And someone would, one of the news buzzwords, right, is the love language. So mm-hmm. figuring out how people display their affection, how they receive affection is really big when you're dealing with somebody who's been through some trauma, because if they don't want to be touched, like if they don't want to talk, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that that people do and how they receive affection, how they give affection. Right. If, if you're off and, and that's not your thing, then that's going to be really bad. And I think a, a, a huge piece of that that's very confusing is if you did the love language thing, you know, before you got married or before the trauma and it was one way. And then after the trauma, it's a 180. You're like, uh, where'd my spouse go? Yes. And there, and, and so, kudos you know make sure that practitioners that you're seeing you they have to include the family and i'm even a huge fan of kind of like a side by side not sitting side by side in the office so to speak but while the first responders going through therapy the spouse and the family have their own homework uh to do at the same time so there there's a a meeting of of the minds as much as there can be well at least educate them on what could happen and what has happened to uh, their spouse or partner that has experienced this level of trauma. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people, they don't, <laughs> you know, some people, the most stressful part of the day might be getting cut off on the way to work and getting shot the finger or something, you know. So to go through something like that, it's hard for a lot of people to understand. And then as a first responder spouse, you don't go home and entirely dump on them. I know I never did and right. told the entire story. Uh, you minimize it, and you or you just don't say anything at all, and they just don't know until something until you start falling apart right in front of them. Right, and that that that's the the message now with the badge of honor and what we're working with is yes, we focus on first responders, but we f- have a whole program dedicated to the family. So we have the first responders and their family in there uh, workshop at the same time because there's got to be that understanding. There's got to be the language of trauma the language of healing and everybody's got to be on the same page. You know, if you have little kids, it's important for them to understand when you say, I can't play with you right now. The reason behind that you're not because kids are just going to be like, why is mom being such a big B right? Why does mom never want to play? And it's not that mom doesn't want to play. Mom's head might be in a space where it's just not, advisable or I can't I just feel drained mom's trying to survive yeah 
Yeah. So we had a we interviewed Shelby Houston, mm-hmm. and her father was a, a Mesquite police officer who was killed in the line of duty, mm-hmm. and she threw out that she's trying to get all of these police officers to go to therapy and saying, if it's not for you, then do it for your kids. And when you put it that way and you think about the fact that all of your trauma, you take home and you try to keep it away from your family, but you're impacting your family. And so they're all feeling it also. So really this is kind of a shout out to anybody who wants to fix themselves and is trying to keep everything away from their family. Like just go talk to somebody about it and you'll be surprised at how much you Number one, you weren't keeping it from your family. You were affecting everybody else around you. It's just a, a huge benefit to actually go and, and get it taken care of before it eats you up. And right. I mean, I, I held it for 17 years. You know, my my kids weren't even born yet, and I'd already changed the way I was acting around people. Yeah, and frankly, with social media and the way things are now, you're really not hiding anything from them. I mean, the the, the you know, you don't have to give the gruesome facts. But they're going to know. Right. So why let somebody else, po- them read a post from somebody else? You tell them. Or watch the video somebody posted yeah. of it. Yeah. Even <clears throat> worse. So your husband played a huge role. And in, in once he found out, like, okay, this this is going to work. And this is the boundaries and space I need to give her uh, while she's. You're, you basically had to, you, your therapist gave you all these tools. Mm-hmm. And you had to work on them. And it's a lot of work. People understand. It's, it is. It's a lot of work to refine the tools that you're given. How long, What? How did that look for you as far as like you go through the EMDR and it, and it opens a can of worms. And, and you're, you know, it, it basically you're exposed to all the trauma all over again. You're, right. You're right. victimized by everything. Now it's all out on the table. You have to figure out how to put it all back in its own little Tupperware and place it in storage. So what kind of time frame and, and how much work did you have to do uh, to get to that point? I mean, you're, you're doing phenomenal, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, you're, thanks. It, but it's, it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did that look? I mean, it was a, it was a year long process. Like I said, EMDR has changed uh, mm. over the years. So, so um, from what we're seeing and, and hearing now and people sharing their their stories that the time frames are much more compressed um, EMDR has gotten so good and the practitioners that are devoted uh, to this they've gotten so good that you know you're not with a practitioner for a year um, it, and and so my, mine was you know it just was and I got to a a point where I could see clearly again and started talking about, well, what, what do we want to do after, after we're done with this? And it was, you know, Hey, I want to do, go back into law enforcement. I want to do what I know how to do best, what I was trained to do, what I was put on this planet to do to serve and protect. And, um, once you get to a point where you're, you have that goal every day, is is the game in mental health it's not you're not you're receiving solutions from the outside but it's not the outside solutions that are going to save you it's what you do with what you've been given every single day and the first thing is open your eyes and get the heck out of bed you 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 got to take you got to put your foot down on the floor realize where you are whether you've just woken up from a nightmare or gotten a great sleep 
And then you've got to plan your day and utilize the tools that you've been given where it fits. So if I'm not triggered all day, yeah, big check mark, gold star, but that's life is life, right? So I could have a trigger an hour after I wake up, but now I have a tool to combat that trigger because it's post-traumatic stress, right? So you're combating that stress response and then I can go on with my day. Not, not being outside for a long time, that, that was a big thing in my treatment that I needed to get back to because I was, I played sports my whole life. I was, that was one of the kids where you get home from school and it's like, okay, dinner is at this time. I'll yell for you. I was not inside. And here I am. I'm like, I can't even go outside of my house because a, a trash truck might be emptying trash. Right. And so once I planned my day where I was like, today we're walking the dog. We're just going around the block. We're walking the dog. Because if I am triggered by something, I have a tool. The trigger isn't going to pull me around and whip me into a frenzy like it did before. How do I know this? Because we did it in her office. We practiced. And in law enforcement, as a first responder, you practice like you play, right? It's the same thing. Make therapy your new training make, you know, it, it all fits. It's all, it's all logical in the grand scheme of things. It's just a different kind of training that you have to learn. Um, and, and that's what I did. And step by step day to day. And sure, I tripped and fell a bunch of times, but I never fell down into that hole and, you know, thought about suicide again. I mean, I, you know, it flashes here and there, like, Oh God, you know, it's one of those days. Do I really want to be here? How many of those days? But it, boom, you break the cycle. You, you're aware of those voices like, Sam, hello. These are not the ones you want to listen to. Yeah. yeah. You didn't find yourself back in that basement. No. It, it sounds like intentionality at its finest. Mm-hmm. You have to get up every day and be intentional in your process. You, whatever process worked before didn't stop working because of the trauma that you're exposed to. So you had to build your own step by step, be intentional and plan your day and what's going to get you through that day. Take it day by day. Absolutely. And sometimes it was just hour by hour, you know, and it's not, it's not, I, what I want people to understand is it's not taking big steps like, Oh, I did EMDR. I did this kind of therapy. I should be fine. That's not how it works. You, you are your own chocolate chip cookie recipe, you know, you, you, that's why I tell people, it's like some people like nuts in theirs. I'm a purist. Just give me, give me the, but, but I do like dark chocolate. So mix in some dark chocolate chips that you need to create your success recipe. And when you're in a place in your mental health journey where you can't even think about looking at a recipe or cracking eggs or whatever, you know, if you, if you can't even envision or you feel like taking the first step, you, you should be seeing somebody 
for sure. I mean, it should have happened already. But that, if, you, if you're numbing out, if you don't want to feel, if you don't want to share, don't want to talk, you know, you're giving the middle finger to the world. And it's with everything. Somebody cuts you off. The computer's operating too slowly. Uh, you know, somebody did something on your favorite sports team. You, you, you know. You know. Yeah, it. we see a lot of that. And negativity in this profession, you know, we, Roy, sorry, we see it every day. Yeah. And, and it, can, it consumes you. And it, it could basically, you can become that person. And as you become that person, nobody else wants to be around that person. And you can isolate, I mean, you push everybody away and isolate yourself. Well, it's easy because mm-hmm. they don't understand. Yeah. So that's when you just draw, fine, they don't understand, move on. And yeah, you do. You push everybody away. And that's exactly what I did. Yep. Yep. But, but it's, it's the, the difficulties and the missteps and the trips and the falls and the scraped knees and everything, it's worth it. It's so worth it. Um, because I never thought in a million years I'd be doing what I'm doing now with three incredible partners in, in the nonprofit. And, and a badge of honor is, you know, we're saving lives. That's what it's about, using... The, the crap that we've been through and and we still go you know for therapy we're not it's just because you went through your trauma and you got you had emdr once it doesn't mean the rest of your life is going to be all you know unicorns and rainbows <laughs> yeah well it's maintenance it's like yeah. your car your car needs maintenance you, yeah. i mean your body needs maintenance too and your mind needs maintenance and just to kind of get a perspective of you know you, you're doing way better than you were Mm-hmm. But you go talk to somebody, they may see something from the outside looking and you don't see within yourself. Just to kind of point it out and like, damn, you walk out of there and go, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, your awareness piece is, you can only be aware of something as you've been trained in it. Like, you know, I, I was never trained as a narcotics officer. I would need to go through a whole class and, you know, how to be undercover and the, you know, the whole thing and you okay so you go to class you train you learn and then you take the steps and then okay narcotics officer well it's not a SWAT officer well if I want to be SWAT I got to go through training and you got to take the steps and so so if you look at therapy and you look at rebuilding your mental health like anything you've ever done in life it doesn't look like this big giant hurdle that you cannot conquer now that's not to discount you know major chemical imbalances that people can find themselves in that's why i said medication has uh its place and yes there there are people that fall into that negativity and their whole brain gets rewired um for that and they have a very difficult time coming out of that that's wanna, a whole nother podcast. Yeah, yeah, but that's the, that's part two with you. We'll come back in. We'll get Tanya Glenn or, or Dr. T and come yeah. in and talk about that. Yep. I want to talk about Badge of Honor. You've you've mentioned your uh, your nonprofit that you're working in, and I want you to tell the listener how you started that and what it is and what your mission is and 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 what you're up to. 
Yeah. So after I decided to, uh, you know, move on from law enforcement, which was in, in uh, 2012 and moved to Texas in 13, um, I was at the management level. Uh, I wasn't doing the, I'll call it the fun stuff on the street. I still rewarding, um, what I was doing, but, but I knew I wasn't going to find, uh, what I needed, right. The, the next steps staying where I was. So, uh, when I when I moved on, I immersed myself in just a giant learning journey. And my husband's been in the health and wellness field for, for years. You know, part of being in law enforcement, you got to stay fit. And I started a side business that kind of evolved into its, its own thing. Um, and it was, it put me in front of leaders that talked about growth journey and really tapped into uh, a creative side that I just kind of never thought I had. I, you know, you know, as an athlete, I was like, what's art, you know, if it was, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, it opened my eyes to a side of, Hey, what about using what you've been through to help people? And, and I'd just be like, well, what do you mean by that? Why would I want to rehash? So it was it was kind of a stepping back because I already did the rehash on the couch that one, you know, and it was kind of hard. So there was a little trepidation. Why would I want to put myself out there? And I had to learn that it's as you live in the vulnerability of being out there, telling your story, no matter how tough and how bad it was, that's what people need to help them because you never know when your story is going to save somebody else's life. And fast forward a bunch of years, uh, it's coming up on September 11th. Uh, a friend of a friend said, Hey, uh, you need to have this girl, Sam uh, from Rowlett on, uh, on your radio show. And it was called Mad Radio, Making a Difference. And uh, the guy that reached out, he had a very unique email address with four numbers. And I said, oh, by any chance, is this your badge number? And he, he said, busted. So he's a retired NYPD detective. And he also served as his uh, um, fire chief in his hometown. So you can do that in New York. So he's from the island. So he's a fire chief on the island. But he's a full-time NYPD detective Uh and uh yeah he worked uh undercover in the five families Um, yeah that's a maybe he'll be on i don't know uh i'll get you hooked up with (laughs) with john yeah he's got incredible stories and after sharing that on the uh on his show and by that time i had written the book um and that that's why i said the creative side i met so many people that helped me cultivate that that i could sit down uh, and write a book, had a great editor, and and we talked about 9-11, we talked about why it's important to remember, we talked about the 412 first responders that we lost that day, and we continue to lose from 9-11 cancers, and, um, and I had been approached while I was going through this journey, hey, Sam, we need to do something together, let's work together, oh, great, what does that look like? And every single time it fell through, like I could not, couldn't get the person back on the phone or, you know, they, they had some, uh, trauma that came up and they, they disappeared. So I was like, 
what am I going to do here? And, and John was like, you know, we need to, we need to do something together. And I was like, Oh God, I'm hearing those words again. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, and I just turned to him and I said, you're not going to disappear on me. And he, he, he looked at me like I had a third eye. He's like, well, no, what are you talking about? Like you had to move to Texas. I had to move to Texas. We found each other in Texas. We both were in New York on nine 11 at the pile. We never met each other till we moved to Texas. And I've met so many 9-11 first responders in Texas. And 2019, uh, we started a badge of honor. And I was working with uh, a a company that was helping me uh, with promotion um, on on my side. Just like, hey, Sam, let's get your story out there. Let's get the book, that that promo. Um, But... John and I are, are, we had so much in common other than 9-11 and uh, the, the the stories and the trauma and, and still the stuff that we dealt with. And um, we're like, well, why don't we, why don't we start this thing and let's, it's you and me and, and we'll go talk to first responders so it, it first looked like, you know, kind of like a peer support kind of thing. We'll just get together and, you know, shoot the shit or whatever it looked like. And then we made some PowerPoint slides and, you know, kind of got formal. And I happened to be asked to uh, go present up at Collin County for, for first responders program. And it was there that I met uh, Jeff Freeman, who's a Rowlett police officer current rallet police officer and he shared his story and i'm just like blown away and i called john and i said hey john um i think i just found another team member for a badge of honor so we talked to jeff and jeff was in the same same boat he he was like who wants to hear all this you know stuff and you know the way that Jeff tells his story. I mean, he's like a comedian and a serious person. It's all wrapped into one, and you you will laugh because uh, it's just the way he makes fun of himself. And uh, but people connect with it. I when he presents to this day, where I'm on the edge of my seat because Jeff just he just lets it fly, tells it like it is. And so there were there was the three of us. And we were going around and we were talking to first responder groups and um, lo and behold, you know, John's like, we need to, we need to make this a nonprofit. And I I said, well, do you just, do you just make it? What do you, what do you do? I don't know. Um, I feel like I have to sign something. Exactly. (laughs) Lots of paper. And is the government involved? You know, what do I, and, and so, um, John reached out. There's a power of networking, power of connection, being open again, learning something new. And uh, we met with a, a woman who walked us through the entire process. And she's like, oh, you guys are doing this. Do you see yourself, you know, making more than 50000 in 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 three years? And I was like, well, I hope so. But what, you know, what are the realities of what our program does? She walked us through it. Fast forward to uh, 2021 in the midst of the pandemic, okay? So we haven't gotten our status yet. Uh, I'm, we're still waiting on it, but we're still doing the programs because the, and I want to say a huge thank you to all of the departments 
that said yes. Because the pandemic brought in a whole new level of stress for their departments across the board. And with that, the need to talk about mental health. How, let's talk about the tools because we don't leave people in the trauma. You're walking out of our workshops, which are eight hours long now, with tactics and tools so when the stress comes up, you know exactly what to do. And we realized uh, after we, right before we got our status, I was like, we need a practitioner. And so kind of looked around who was doing what. And I had remembered back to that Collin County deal. And I was like, wait, there was this, there was this guy, oh my God, I have to, I have to find him. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Edmondson from Healing Springs Ranch up in Tioga, he has an incredible background his trauma you know from when he was a little kid it's it's heartbreaking um, to hear what he went through as a as a young person and it's incredible to hear what he did with it and the impact that he's making and he, he is such a gifted person um and and a just an outstanding like, creative mind. It like takes up for all of us, his creativity. And he became part of the team. I mean, it was like a one second ask. He's like, yes. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, what, you know, just what does it look like? Cause obviously he's got a full client load at the ranch and, and everything that he does. And uh, we, it just works. And so we got certified by the state of Texas, and so we can offer T-Cole credits to the first responders that come through. And like I said, it's eight hours, and it's work. Mm-hmm. It's work, because it, this is not death by PowerPoint. This is not a two-day conference. This is not a notebook full of stuff that you have to say, wait, what they say? And you have to go flip back through pages. We want to make, our whole goal was to make it just like we trained you do the skill in repetition so that there's no thought process and so we call it building your wellness and resiliency toolbox and sure we we give you paper and you know you people bring notebooks and stuff but it's like keywords buzzwords words that stand out to you words that you know you're not gonna forget we talk about um uh we talk about what your why is and why it's important to write that out. And you got it on your fridge, on your mirror, at your desk, in your car. And and how that can literally save your life. And so, you know, we, we're not leaving. There's so many programs I've participated in, uh, whether it be on Zoom. Because like I said, the pandemic changed a lot. Whether it be on Zoom or in person where you're going, okay, now what? This was great information, but now what? And we don't do that. And so, uh, you know, if you like being immersed, you know, in an eight hour, it's an eight hours interactive workshop. It's back and forth. We've got, you know, sheets of paper. We ask you to rate stuff. We talk. Um, yeah, we do group in, in the afternoon where we all get to in a circle, but you know, John does a, a form of, of, uh, group EMDR. Um, it's not full because it's not appropriate in the, in that setting, but that's why I said EMDR has come such a long way. 
and we talk about therapy and we talk about what that looks like and the last slide of the day is our slide of all of the partners and the resources that we have cultivated with over the years and we put that up and it's also included in their little toolbox they actually get a little physical toolbox there's like you're never alone when you think you're alone open that toolbox and look at all of these resources go to our website click on a logo you're on the home page and whether you want to get well by being outdoors or you want to try this thing called EMDR we got you and it's all about offering a you know a handout to help somebody get up hey sam uh, could you for the listener can you tell us your mission statement on your uh, do you have a mission statement i'm sure you do yeah so our mission is to provide post traumatic stress awareness and suicide prevention for first responders that's in a nutshell and where would uh, the listener, if you're a listener or organization that want to uh, get involved and get their own toolbox, what's the website? It's real simple, abadgeofhonor.com. Yeah, I don't even yeah. have to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, this is growing, evolving. This is just, you made it past the pandemic, mm-hmm. and there's a new layer of trauma for everybody because of that. We're still reeling and still healing from that. Um, what is next? What is your next mission to keep? I know you're going to get this growing, but give us a peek in the future for you. Yeah, it, it, it already has, has grown since, you know, we're not sitting six feet apart from each other anymore. So we're back up full, full for, force in, in the departments. Um, so full classes. We also started, uh, we've got that family wellness uh, and resiliency as well. Um, and we started a new initiative called Walk the Bridge. And this is something that started in 2018 uh, over in my neck of the woods and uh, on the bridge that connects, depending on where you are, Rowlett to Rockwall or Rockwall to Rowlett, depending on which direction you're driving. And uh, it it was on the 22nd of every month, and it was really to highlight uh, and make people aware of the suicide epidemic plaguing our veterans. And we brought in first responders after that um, because the number was never 22, which it took a bunch of years to find out that it was never 22. Uh, but that number, you know, a lot of a lot of mission statements, a lot of of, of uh, nonprofits use that that number so people connect with it and it took on its own thing um god bless senator hall uh he took uh the recommendation to change the bridge the 66 bridge and it's now called heroes memorial bridge and so we had a we brought people out to uh, rededicate the bridge and it is a hero's bridge because it is a hero's walk. And we don't like, as first responders, we don't like to be called heroes. It's like, oh, just doing our job, right? Um, but to the average uh, or to the citizen, that's what we are. And so you have, you got to be comfortable with that term. And once we got the public involved and be like, this isn't just, this isn't just an initiative 
where those of us that have served get out there and, you know, offer peer support to each other. We're moving. We're, t- we're literally taking steps forward to healing. Um, this is a, a chance to uh, include families that have lost loved ones, whether it be from mental health and they're not service related or, uh, you know, they've lost a, a spouse in the, in the line of duty or to suicide. And what we like to say is we want people to come out to remember their loved ones the way they lived, not in the manner that they died. And it is, um, it continues to grow. It's now worldwide. We just launched a, a third Walk the Bridge in the UK. And, uh, you know, that's a big, kind of a big country as well. And, um, yeah, so we are nationwide. And if you go to walkthebridge.org, you can see all of the locations. You can also start your own if it's something that you go onto the website and you like what you see, reach out to us and start it in your community because mental health affects everybody and we can all heal together. And I, I think the more that the, the, uh, we understand a lot of the, what the public goes through, the non-uniform folks and vice versa, that is that is where you bridge a lot of, as your podcast says, the divide that um, has only grown bigger um, over these last few years. And we're looking to, you know, come together. That was a big uh, player in the selecting the name for this thing, uh, too. So yeah. and that bridge, I actually have to go over that, as you do, too, later on today. I have to go pick up my daughter, that bridge. And I drove over it on uh, Memorial Day. And all the flags are up, and I always see people walking across the 66 bridge carrying flags or carrying th- their pack. I mean, it's really, it, it's beautiful. Yeah, so we are out the third Sunday of every month. So, uh, you know, like I said, go to the website, see if it's in your area, and come and join us. Uh, we want to we wanna stop adding pictures to, uh, to that bridge wall. Sam, I've got a question uh what is the first piece of advice that you would give a responder or just a citizen that's going through their, their own 9-11 or July 7th event? What the first piece of advice that you would tell them? Talk. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your friend. Talk to a family member. Talk to your freaking dog. <laughs> talk. Do not keep it inside. Don't, don't go silent could boil over right because it bottle it up it's mm-hmm. you can't release it i want i want you to we've thrown you got a lot of stuff going on and you yeah. have a lot of things planned i want you to tell listeners about your uh your podcast yeah we have a podcast uh, again real easy to remember a badge of honor podcast and uh it's weekly we we do it live actually so it's a little bit different um so we bring guests on that are all about healing uh and our first responders uh even technology like people developing apps anything that a first responder can use because it's about giving first responders and family members tools not just go to therapy therapy is great but some people are not there you know they just need they're feeling overwhelmed they're feeling really stressed out okay but they're not necessarily like i i don't 
feel the need for EMDR. Like I'm not, I don't feel broken. Right. But I do need some new outlet or I need to do something tools. So we bring them, we, we bring them on and, uh, it runs live on YouTube, LinkedIn live and Twitter live. That's every Monday at 5 PM central. And then uh, we have an incredible uh, company that manages us. Shout out to OBBM uh, Media Network over in Farmer's Branch. And what they do is they take our, our stuff and they strip out audio and put it on all the podcast apps. So you can listen on your favorite podcast app when you're running or walking or wherever. Um, and then we started a Rumble TV channel because of... You know, stuff is the way it is, and uh, Rumble is growing, and Rumble won't cancel us <laughs> because yeah. sometimes, hey, we don't pull punches. We're real. We say what what needs to be said, and sometimes uh, YouTube doesn't like that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's why Joe wants to start an OnlyFans, but I yeah. can't tell him yeah. that we, yeah. we, can't, we can't do that on OnlyFans. I, I actually actually did start. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll talk offline about that one. I like what you, you've mentioned several times about people telling their stories and, and mm-hmm. the value in it and even your reluctance to talk about it. Why the hell would I want to talk about this again? I mean, gotta just, it's, I'm not to re-traumatize you know, myself, but I believe there's such value in other people hearing it and hearing the, the, mom, the, the down moments and hearing the resiliency creep out and you build on it and you get tools and you apply those tools and then you become the person that you are now that's Mm -hmm. it's a success story you know one-on-one workshop and i that's why starting this up it was actually in dr t's uh three-day seminar that's what gave me the idea for this is listening to people tell their stories of falling on their face but picking themselves back up and reading the room and seeing the reaction and that's the same thing you're used to seeing when you're out talking to hundreds of people. It gives people hope. It lets them know you're not broken. Things may not be going really well right now, or maybe the wheels all fell off. But there's a lot of stories out there where the wheels are off, the chassis is gone, the frame is bent. You do what you need to do. You dig in deep. Do not give up. And you will come back. And I like to think that, you know, we come back stronger in the end. And everybody's journey is their own. There's no comparison, just like with trauma. Trauma is trauma. There is no comparison with that. And I think the more that people embrace the understanding that, hey, if you're going to raise your right hand and you're going to take that oath, you need to understand what that job is going to bring to you so that you can start in the very beginning on your on building that resiliency and and your wellness component and you've got to stick with it the the more resilient you are the better and we're huge fans of getting programs in at the ground floor and some departments are, are doing that because you got to know you don't it's it's as we sit here doing this podcast 
we're not we're not in the blindsiding business anymore. We're not in the suck it up business anymore. Those times have passed. And if you're in a department where you still have people saying suck it up and move on, look somewhere else. Because it is not worth your mental health. I had a final question, but damn, I think you had a mic drop <laughs> with that. I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Wow. I'd like to get you back on as a, as a guest co-host uh, later on for other episodes if you're up for it. Absolutely. Especially you living so close. Thank you for being you. Thank you for spreading this much-needed conversation. You did your uh, service, and now you're doing an even bigger service for so many others and the first responders and, and the communities they serve. Thank you, Sam. Well, you're very welcome, and I appreciate what you all are doing putting this out there because your stories, our stories, do save lives. So thank you. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run up from the bottom Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey Mrs. Hey Mr. I'll see this all the way I'll never give up on you.